So the picture that you're looking at behind me is a place called the Old Vine House. And uh, it is in the Miravor region of Slovenia. Okay, I've never been there. Um, but this large vine that you see kind of cascading out over the, uh, the top of the house here has been, um, it has been identified by the Guinness World Record Society in 2004 as being the oldest living vine in the world. Oldest living grape producing vine in the world. It is over 400 years old. Um, early 17th century. Uh, it's a pretty amazing little thing, I'm telling you. Um, the, the root bulb, the central root bulb of where this, this main vine, if you can see, it's kind of there's the main vine there, and then they kind of have some little sister ones that have actually been taken as clippings from this and then kind of planted to help support the whole vine. But um, the main root bulb on that is almost 12 feet in circumference, if you can think about that, about how big that root system is right under the surface there. It provides nutrients to branches that are over 120 feet away from the root that are still producing grapes. It still produces about 700 pounds of grapes a year, which is enough, I guess, because they really, really distill it down and are real picky or whatever, but it makes about 25 liters of, uh, um, of wine a year, which is bottled into these little special collector's edition 250 milliliter bottles and it's given to like foreign dignitaries and people like that so you know presidents and statesmen and important people get them right and I don't know if they ever actually drink them or not um, you know because it's more like hey look I own wine from the oldest vine in the world right that would be that would be cool enough in and of itself but you have to consider the history of the region that it's in Slovenia has not been the most peaceful place in the entire world Okay, if it was in the early 17th century, that means it survived the Ottoman Habsburg Wars, which we probably don't know very much about, but were very, very bloody, and they were in the late 17th century. It survived the invasion of Napoleon Bonaparte. It survived an invasion of a completely different kind. There was this aphid uh, known as the, oh man, I can't even say this, the Philozera. Okay, it was this little aphid that was an invasive species that was actually accidentally introduced from uh, North America, and it killed and destroyed over half of the uh, wine-producing vines in all of France and Central Europe in the late 19th century. It was, it was economically devastating. We're talking like in the late 19th century, in the tens of millions of dollars of loss. And this vine survived that. This vine survived World War I. This vine survived World War II. This, survived, this vine survived the rise and the fall of the Soviet Union and the creation of the satellite state of Yugoslavia. It has survived the ethnic cleansing that was happening in Slovenia and the Balkan, in the, all of the Balkan states in the late 90s. This thing's been through a lot. And yet through careful, through careful care and, and, and maintenance... This vine has not only survived, it has thrived, hasn't it? I love it when God gives us stories like that in creation to take a look at and say, oh, okay. So this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the vine. Jesus, re Jesus really, really knew what he was talking about, obviously. But, I mean, he really had a very, very um, keen ability to both look at what was right around him 
and use what was ordinary and bring it up and make it something greater. As well as to be able to look at things that were delving deep, deep, deep into the history of Israel. Okay? Um, if, you, if you consider how often Israel is referred to the vine of God. The psalmist in Psalm 80 rejoices in thanksgiving about the God who took a vine out of Egypt and planted it. And throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, there are so many that refer to Israel as a vine in God's care. And that, that image had taken so much root by the time that God, you know, the time that God sent his son, that the vine had actually become kind of a national symbol of Israel. We are the vine in God's care. In fact, um, if you want to go to the next slide real quick, during the, uh, during the, um, during the Maccabean Revolution, which was a, a brief period of time between the Greek and the Roman occupation, where... Um, Israel was self-governed for a little while again. Um, during the revolution, this was their coinage. This was their, this was their signage. And if you look on the back, there's, there's the palm tree. And if you look on the front, there's the vine and the cluster of grapes. It was a national symbol. We are the vine under God's care. We are the vine in God's hand. And it had become kind of a matter of pride for them. And even one of the glories of the second temple in the, that was built during the time of Jesus was this great golden vine that was winding around the entrance to the holy place. And many a great family or a great Jewish individual had counted it an honor to donate enough gold in order to fashion a new cluster of grapes or even a single grape onto this golden vine. It was a symbol of we are God's people. We are in God's hands. We are under God's care. No matter what has happened in our history, no matter what is going to happen in our future, we are under God's care. We are under God's maintenance. We are, we are, we are the vine in his hand, so to speak. Now, so, Je so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, realize he is reaching way into the identity of Israel. But he is also talking about something that is right around the disciples. There's a change of scenery in John chapter 14, at the end of John 14 and beginning to 15. You can see it. He's been talking to them. He's been talking to them about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's very, very, very important. Because it's going to play a lot into what he says about this idea of, I am the vine and you're the branches. But there's this little phrase, come, let's get up and go. That doesn't seem like much, but we need to realize there's a change of scenery. What has been going on around the table, what has been going on around the Last Supper, that conversation transitions. They move out of the upper room, and they go toward the Garden of Gethsemane. So where they're going is they come out of Jerusalem, they come down through the Kidron Valley, and they come up into the Garden of Gethsemane. And that area okay, is known for a lot of things. I mean, one, we talked back at Easter about how the valley of the Kidron was kind of the natural valley where all of the blood and the water of the sacrifice was flowing out, right? And later when John sees the spear going to the side and the blood and the water come out of Jesus, that is so impactful for him because he sees 
in it the culmination of all sacrifice happening. All of those, all of those sacrifices and the blood and the water that was flowing out of the Kidron Valley from all of the Passover lambs that were being slaughtered, right? All of that being fulfilled in Jesus. But there's more to it than that area. That's rich farmland. That's where the vineyards are. And they're moving up into the Garden of Gethsemane, this, this, this well-maintained, carefully crafted area of, of lush plant life where, where Jesus spent his times in solitude, where he spent his times connecting with the Father while he was in Jerusalem. And as they move through these scenes, Jesus says, I want you to realize something. I am the true vine. And when he says this, he is talking about the most intimate relationship image possible between the disciple and him. It is a relationship of security. It is a relationship of constancy in difficult times as well as a relationship that involves change and growth and progression. Jesus knows in just a few moments there is going to be some great upheaval. The disciples' world is going to be turned upside down as the master gardener begins cutting away the dead wood of the rebellion of Israel and the entire world once and for all. The old understanding of the law, the old understanding of salvation, of sacrifice, of eternal life, these things are going to be reshaped by God's hand. And the process that will ultimately bring life is going to look like death and destruction at first. And so he uses the metaphor of, and every branch that my father wants to bear good fruit, he is going to cut at. He is going to clean away the dead wood from. He is going to remove the unnecessary pieces from. It is, a, it is a complete and it is an unpleasant experience, I think. And yet it is a necessary and ultimately a life-bringing experience. Why prune something? Why do that? Because the energy of the plant is wasted if you allow every little stem to grow. And so the gardener that knows carefully chooses those branches, carefully chooses those stems, carefully chooses those places where the most and the best production is going to occur. And he nurtures those pieces and the other pieces he removes. Is it a production-oriented process? Yeah, it is. Okay, it, it is about production. But at the same time, it is about care. It is about maintenance. It is, it is not just because, again, I think, I think we lose this in the world of like, you know, large-scale computer-driven farming, okay, genetically, you know, genetically modified seeds and things like that. We kind of miss this idea of the relationship that the, the gardener has with the things that he maintains and cares. Much like we missed the relationship earlier of the shepherd and the sheep. 
Is there production expected? Yes, but there's so much more to it than that. This is still a relationship thing because it's encased in the gift of the Holy Spirit as a guide and a comfort and a counselor. That's what Jesus talks about before getting into the vine. And right after, it's encased in this idea of friendship, which is a very interesting thing for a teacher to be saying to his students. It's a very interesting thing for a rabbi to be saying to his disciples, to call them friends. But this whole idea of Jesus being the vine, this whole idea of pruning, of cutting away the dead wood, of removing the things that are unnecessary and as painful and as uncomfortable as that might be, that whole concept is grounded, and even the production of fruit, which we're going to get to in a second, but all of that is grounded in the idea of relationship, deep, intimate relationship, connection on a scale that you and I have only dreamed of without Christ. And we can't miss that. Because if we miss that, then we miss the point of all of this passage. And the entire discussion that takes place from the supper all the way up until Jesus is taken at the garden is I am redefining relationship between God and man right now for you. And it looks like this. I am the true vine. And your life, real life, comes when you become an extension of my life. That's the only way. See, here's the thing about the Jewish people. Their identity with the vine had become a symbol of God's election. But when you look at most of the passages that call them the vine of God's hand in the prophets, it is almost always as an image not of regeneration, but degeneration. The vineyard has run wild on its own. It has failed to be what it was intended to be, what it could be with the proper guidance and the proper nurture, the proper pruning, the proper shaping. It's as if Jesus is saying, as he says, I am the true vine, don't count on your identity as a Jew to save you. Belonging to Israel doesn't make you a branch of the true vine of God any more than anyone else. The only thing that can sustain you is being intimately joined to me, for I am your source of life. And if we translate what that's going to mean into today, I mean, it could mean a lot of different things, but one of them, I think, is this. When my dad and my grandmother were here a couple weeks ago, they had a bunch of those connecting conversations with people here. Oh, oh, you're from there. Do you know so-and-so? And all that. I mean, it's a small world, but it's especially a really, really small world in the churches of Christ. And so you find, you know, that you know people that know people that, you know, and you're spread all over the place, right? One of those connections was with Carolyn, where we found out that my, so my grandmother, her, her younger brother, Burl, was one of the professors at Sunset School of Preaching when her mom and dad were there. So, I mean, we're, you know, we're all over the place, right? Uh, yeah, and, and there are lots of little connections like that that get made. Um, we found another relative was a founder of Cordell Christian College. Hickman's have a connection to that. It's over in Oklahoma. I mean, there's, there's all these little connections all over the place. But, see, I've got Bozeman's and Brockman's and all other kind of Church of Christ preacher names in my family tree. But here's the thing. Just because I come from a long line of preachers, that doesn't have one iota of significance to my relationship with God. 
I cannot rest in like a family identity or a denominational identity or a, a cultural identity. I can't rest in any of those things to say, okay, see, I have a relationship with God because blah. The only thing Jesus says that defines, that defines whether I am in right relationship with God is my connection to him. My connection to Jesus Christ, that's it. He is the only source of life. And there is no external or internal qualification that can set a person right or bring the security of salvation. It is only the singular dependence on this peculiar friendship with Jesus Christ that can do that for us. And it is a peculiar friendship. It is. I, uh, I, I saw this and I thought it was really, really funny, this, this next slide. Um, and I really, I love it because it's, in land of where you can, you know, be someone's friend by adding them on Facebook or where you can follow someone by, uh, by just, you know, clicking a button on Twitter. You know, Jesus says to us, no, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally actually want you to follow me. I literally actually want you to be in relationship with me. That doesn't mean just checking in every now and then to see what I think or posting great comments on, that was an awesome sermon, Jesus, LOL. Um, you know, it, it means that I actually want to tie, I want you to tie your life into mine. Your branch needs to be grafted into me. You need to be taking life from me and no other. I loved being camping this past week. I, I still have, Jeremy's going to make fun of me because what I have I call a camping beard. I have tightened it up a little bit, okay? Because if we were in the, yeah, I know, he's, he's just laughing at me. He's like, son, I grow that in four hours. You know, I, I'm like, yes, I know. But, I, you know, we, we, we made a pact that, that Eaton, and, and, uh, Eaton and, and Daniel and I would at least subject you to our camping beards for one week before we shave. Um, I, I did choose to clean up the neck because if we were in the land of like the late, you know, like late 1800, like when everybody was growing those neck beards, you know, where they had the clean-shaven face and they were grumpy looking and they had these big shocks like that started here. I would be the king of those, okay? But I, I cannot grow that. Yeah, no, I just can't. But we, were, we had a great time camping this week. Had a great time camping. The only problem is, how do you charge your iPhone when you're camping and there's no electricity? I have a confession to make, okay? In order, in, order to, in order to write sermons and keep up with what was going on and at least stay minutely connected to what was going on, I was taking trips into Lake Cowichan and I had like this three-way USB charger thing for my car. And every time anybody had to go for anything, like Eaton or me or whatever, it's like we're, we're all plugging these things in and, you know, jamming it into the, the car so that we can get like just a little bit of juice so that we can... You know, go check real quick before our battery dies again. And then we're like turning it off and storing it away and like hoarding it and, and hoping that we don't run, out of, don't run out of juice for our iPhone while we're out camping in the middle of nowhere. I worry that maybe that's kind of what we think being connected to Jesus as the vine and the branch is like. Is that when we're feeling a little bit low on the juice, so to speak... We go read a verse. We go pray a prayer. We go serve the poor. We, whatever it is that does it for you, we go do that. 
in order to plug back in and charge back up so that then we can go. Maybe that's what we think this is. Maybe that's what we think the table that we were just involved with was. Is that we come in, we do our worship, we get our word, we get our communion, and then we go because we're charged now. Then we come back and we do it again and again and again and again. Church, that is not what Jesus had in mind when he said abide in me. That is, that is really, really not at all what he was talking about. Okay? It's not. That's not the kind of friendship that Jesus is talking about. The friendship that Jesus is talking about is, look, just in the same way that you cannot cut a vine off, a vine branch off, and lay it out in the sun for a little while, and then come in and just go, and just stick it back on, in the same way, you cannot experience the life that is abundant, the life that is real, the life that is full of me, if you consider that your connection to me involves times and places and spaces and actions. It's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be more than that. It is also not merely about doing holy things. I worry about this passage because it's really tough for us to navigate at times. Okay, Jesus is going to disabuse us here of the notion that discipleship is a static or an honorary position. If I'm a disciple, it's because I have submitted myself to growth and change and the work of God's hand in my life. There is no point where I get to kick back and relax and say, I've arrived in the realm of spiritual transformation. It doesn't work that way. Okay? It is something that God, as the master gardener, is going to be shaping inside of you and I for the rest of our lives. In fact, he makes it clear in verse 10 that the only reason you and I are even invited into this great friendship with Jesus in the first place is because it glorifies the Father. That's the only reason. And the expectation is, I'm not getting into workspace salvation here, but you've got to hear me on this. The expectation is production. Jesus makes it really clear. The, vine, the, the branches that don't have any fruit-producing capability, they get taken away. Why? Because it is the Father's desire that we bear much fruit. If we're a branch that's just kicking back and assuming that this all exists for our benefit, we are misguided. I believe that, I really, really believe that that is one of the most significant, one of the most significant markings of immature Christianity in Western civilization is that so much of our understanding of Jesus coming to earth, his saving acts, the entire story of God's salvation, our understanding is wrapped around the ideas that we think this exists for us, for our benefit. In church, with as much love as I can say in my heart, we need to, that is a foolish notion, and we need to leave it very quickly. 
Is there amazing, great joy and benefit from being found in the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely. But that is not the reason that the kingdom of heaven exists. The kingdom of heaven does not exist for you and I. The kingdom of heaven exists for God's good pleasure. And where we find our pleasure in life, Jesus says, is when my life becomes an extension of Christ's life. See, I think that idea that, that, that the gospel exists for us and that salvation exists for us and that the kingdom of heaven exists for us and that holiness exists for us so that we can have a better life. I think that is the root of why so many times we look at this abiding in me thing as I'm going to go live my life and then I'm going to come back and charge up when I need spiritual guidance and help. Rather than surrendering all of that and saying, I live secure and confident in my identity as an extension of Jesus Christ as he is the visible of the almighty God. Do you see the difference there, church? Do you see, do you see the difference in thinking there? It's a huge difference for us. It changes everything about this idea of abiding in me. Everything, I think. And now before you, I mean, I guess, but before you totally tune me out on this since it's so unpopular or so uncomfortable of a thinking, or, whether, or before you have a salvation anxiety attack, okay, I, w- I want you to have, I want us to explore the rest of this peculiar friendship that Jesus outlines and this fullness of him being the true vine. Because, see, the last thing that God wants or I want is for you to take this idea of bearing fruit as a disciple and run out of here in some kind of guilt-induced frenzy of religious activity to try and make sure that you're one of the good vines. Or to get some weird idea about the, the, the difficulties that you're rolling through and assuming that because, you know, maybe they're not being pruned out quite the way that you'd like them or, or that you're going through pain in life that, 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 you know, just getting upset or upended about what God is doing and assigning more, than, assigning more to it than there may be. I guess is what I'm saying. I want us to be able to look at what it really means for us to abide in Jesus. Remember the context that Jesus is delivering this message in. He is not trying to get a few last instructions on performance to the disciples before heading to the cross. That is not why he's talking to them. He has talked to them about the nature of what it means to be a disciple throughout the entire gospel. It's not like doing it once more and plugging a few more words for good measure is going to get the message across now. I mean, we know the end of the story. They all forget it anyway. They don't know what's going on, right? And Jesus knows that, and that's not what he's doing here. He is not bringing last-minute performance instructions. What is he doing? He is trying to encourage the disciples to stick with him. And rest in the security that he is the true source of life. Even when things get really difficult, like they're getting ready to in the narrative of the gospel. The command to them and to you and I is not get out there and produce. That's not the command. The command is stay stuck to me. I will produce through you. 
I heard a little story about a girl who was in an apple orchard with her grandmother and was scared by the wind moaning through the leaves of the trees and asked her grandmother what it was. And the grandmother replied, oh, honey, it's just the trees sighing and groaning a bit. It's hard work growing them apples all day. Which was good for allaying the fears of the little girl who was scared of the wind, but really, really bad theology, okay? I mean, we got orchards and vineyards and stuff all up Old Field and everything by where we live, okay? I've walked around there a lot. I have never, I have never heard vines grunting. I have never heard trees groaning. I have never heard them going, produce fruit. You know, like, they're not doing that. It doesn't work that way. They don't shut their eyes tightly and strain and go, come on you know, to make it happen. It doesn't work that way. It's a silly notion in our heads, isn't it? It doesn't work that way. Why would it work that way for us? If this is the analogy that Jesus uses of what it means to be a disciple, why do we think it would work for us? If we can just come get a little bit of sustenance and then run out in the world and go, produce, you know, that's not, that's not what he's talking about. Instead, realize everything about a tree or a vine producing is it's part of their identity it's a natural process it is out of the overflow of who they are that they produce and you apply that to you and i and we try so hard to do the right thing instead of letting who we are in Jesus Christ be what produces those things out of us. You know, Jesus says out of the overflow of the heart a person speaks. I believe out of the overflow of the heart they do as well, right? And the question for us is not what are we doing or not doing? It's who am I becoming in Christ Jesus? And how does that position me to work out of the overflow of my life? out of the overflow of the Spirit at work inside of me. That is how we produce, church. Somewhere along the line, I think we got this idea that we needed to believe and behave first. And then we could belong to Jesus fully. And Jesus flips that idea completely on its head. Jesus sets our identity. He says, No, 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 no. You belong in me. And you, you know what you work at? You work at belonging in me. You work at allowing the things that lie to you about who you are and whose you are. You work at getting, you work at letting my spirit dispel those things in you. And you get set on who you are in me, that you belong to me and me alone. And that my life is in you, and that's the only thing that sustains you. That and nothing else. And out of that, we will work on your believing and your behaving. Mm. That is a really amazing gospel, folks. That is a really amazing word of God. Hudson Taylor put Jesus' words in context this way. The branch of the vine, it does not worry It does not toil. It doesn't rush here to seek for sunshine and there to find rain. No, it rests in union and communion with the vine. And at the right time and in the right way, the right fruit is found. 
let us so abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you feel like you're one of those dead sticks on the ground that has been disconnected from the vine. You know, one of the beautiful things is that while naturally I cannot come and take a dead stick and stick it back into a plant and have it live, I know a God who can supernaturally do that. He's my friend, right? Not just my, not just my buddy, he's my Lord and he is almighty and he has the ability to do that for you today. I don't know, maybe you find that you've been in this cycle of, of I've been just coming to Jesus to just get, you know, a little bit of life here every week, a little bit of life there every week, and you, you, you desire to truly abide in him. You know, when I was talking with the kids earlier, I, I talked with them about this, you know, the things that God gives us to do, the, the reading of his word, the praying of the prayers, the, the serving of other people, do those things connect us to Jesus? Yes, they do. That is the most elementary understanding, right? What, what really, really grows our connection to Jesus, though, is when we see those things not merely as the things that connect him, but the things that allow his spirit that is already at work in us to present itself, to work out of the overflow, where it becomes constant and consistent in our lives. Not just a prayer we say every now and then, not just a word that we go to every now and then, but when his word gets hidden in our hearts and it lives out of us. When at any time and at any place and at any way, we are free to pray and connect with our Lord. Maybe that's a whole new world for you right now. I don't know. But I want you to know that that sort of abiding exists for you as the branch. Oh, maybe you are going through some severe pruning right now, okay? I mean, I, we, you know, we, I wondered what I was going to do when we got into this narrative of, of it is well with my soul because, I mean, you think of the, I would not wish that kind of experience on anybody, on anyone. And yet the fruit that it produces, the hymn that we sing, and how many people have taken solace off of that hymn, myself included, because one person's life was devastated. I am not saying that that is okay. I am not saying that that's justified. What I am saying is, is that's good fruit. That's good fruit. Because of the willingness to abide even in the times of pruning. And maybe that's where you are. God is with you in that. See the relationship in that. Don't just see what's going on externally. See the relationship in that. See that you are still in the hands of the master gardener. We can spend our whole lives learning more about this simple phrase, remain in me. remain in me. How are we going to respond in a way that allows ourselves to be connected more to Christ as the source of our sustenance today? As the connection to Almighty God, the source of all life. That is the challenge and the encouragement that he lays in front of us today. Let's pray together.
Lord, we humbly come to you. What else can we do? You have said it to yourself. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Nothing. Cannot make myself more holy in your sight. Cannot produce the kind of fruit that is in keeping with repentance and righteousness. I can't do those things, Lord. I cannot do them without you. And yet, Lord, thank you so much that that is not your command to me and that is not your command to anybody here. Your command is remain in me. Stay stuck to me. Stay connected to me. Receive life and identity and purpose from me and I will produce the fruit in you. And Lord, let us, I pray that you will help us to throw ourselves wholeheartedly at that, Lord. To not see this remaining as, as, a, as a, just a sitting still. But that, that remaining can be something that we actively strive for. That we actively seek to abide. That we search out the depths of who you are. And we search out the depth of that connection daily. And that our awareness is raised to see all of the ways that you are present before us. And all of the ways that we can abide in you in our everyday lives. And so our everyday lives do not become even ordinary at all, but they become extraordinary because of the way that you are producing fruit through us. Lord, I beg you just to give us a glimpse of those things. And I beg you that your spirit would be upon us so that we can abide in you daily. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your son, who is the true vine, who is the source of our sustenance. And thank you for your spirit, which is life and breath to us. We pray by his name and by your spirit.